0: don't beat you over the head with our opinion and we listen to yours the new face of talk radio voice america women's radio network
1: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone.
2: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I am your social worker with a microphone so early in the morning. Thanks for joining us this morning with my co-host, Lauren Deller. How are you this morning, Lauren?
3: Good morning, Catherine. I'm doing well. How about you?
2: Well, I, that's a good question because I am frazzled. I and you—you you already knew that, but I am out in Cape Cod again this summer, and I feel like I'm not in the hinterlands because my AOL keeps going down. Uh, sometimes the phone doesn't even work, and that's how we're connected. So, okay, guys, folks, who's ever listening, just bear with us if we get disconnected this morning, because Lauren will just keep talking to the guests, won't you? Of course. Yeah, and. Reuben, our board op, we'll just uh, disc, just just uh, put on some spots and we'll be okay. Spots are commercials, for those of you who don't know. So we should be good anyway, because we have three guests this morning, Lauren, and they're going to be coming on shortly. We have the Food Network's Sunny Anderson. She's been on the show before. She's going to talk to us about her new series on the Food Network, How'd That Get On My Plate? <laughs> <laughs> um, and our she's actually she's our last guest, Lauren. That. First guest is going to be the Brotherhood of Joseph. That's the name of the book. This is a father's memoir of infertility and adoption in the 21st century. Brooks Hansen.
3: Very pertinent topic
2: yes. for these days yes it is a lot of in vitro fertilization a lot of couples who are not fertile but this is kind of unique because this is from a perspective a male perspective usually these books are written from a fe- female perspective and this is written from the perspective of the father so that's interesting and then here's like this like very quirky book it's called the Hamptons Dictionary and it's uh the fellow who wrote it is the son of a very famous architect who lived in the Hamptons I think he seems deceased but Miles Jaffe is the is, is his son, Jaffe was his father's last name, I forgot what his first father's first name was, and he writes about the Hamptons and all the quirky stuff, and all, you know, he's lived there all his life, but, you know, today the Hamptons represent a lot of, like, lust and greed and nastiness, and he talks about that in his book. So that's it for this morning.
3: Sounds like fun. I love the Hamptons. Had a, I had a summer Hamptons. I could write a book on my summer in the Hamptons.
2: How Did you go every summer? Or did no, you ever just long...
3: for one summer when I was a kid.
2: And how, a
3: kid pre-pubescent? Six, pre- oh, no, 16. Ah, <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs>
3: that makes a difference. I look forward to his conversation.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> he also he has a website called Nuke the Hamptons. Nuke the Hamptons. If you go to Nuke the Hamptons, it comes in like you. it's a website, and it has like a map of the Hamptons, and then it has your screen looks like you are on a radar kind of thing and that you could nuke any one of the Funny.
3: Hamptons. It's
2: very funny, yeah. It's cool. Now, you've been traveling a lot, right? I have.
3: Finally back home.
2: Yeah. So have, have you? Have This is my. This is my latest vendetta. This like I don't know if this bothers our listeners at all, but I do. I want to talk about it because etiquette on the planes are driving, or lack of etiquette on the planes, driving me nuts. Is Absolutely. it? Yes. Crazy. I've had a
3: really good plane. Excruciating on a plane. Um. I don't know. Two, four, six, eight times in the past to three weeks. I no had probably really good, no pro, and I was traveling with Sierra, so maybe other people had problems with me, but. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I read somewhere they kicked somebody off the plane because they <gasps> kicked the, with, yeah, with a baby because they couldn't, I don't know if it was a baby, I think it was, a, actually, I think it was a child who had ADD. How do you feel about this? Ugh,
3: that's a hard situation.
2: Yeah, and, and, and the mother just couldn't control the kid, and so they actually <clears throat> told her she had to get off the plane. Uh, you know, it's I can understand it. Um, you know. I can
3: understand it, and
2: i can I can so understand I
3: mean Sierra was traveling after three, she had one night, three hours' sleep, and she just was a crazy lunatic and wanted to go to the flight attendant rather than sit with the flight attendant rather than me
2: <laughs> and you gave her over take this baby and you I went I only right had the,
3: 3 hours sleep would you like her <laughs> oh my god
2: no <laughs> yeah well that's the thing if you I feel bad I empathize cuz I've been there but yeah, now I'm not there and it's like I want to enjoy my flight so I get it yeah yeah but this one this is in the New York Times like and it was um there's actually a company get this and it, the head of the company is a woman. Her name is Susan Fitter, which is appropriate for the name of this company. She's the founder of Global Manners, which is a consulting firm that provides guidance on etiquette and protocol. Interesting. Yeah, and that would be the modern-day kind of Emily Post, I guess. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So, and there's a big picture of her in the New York Times, and she had an experience on a plane. She didn't have a baby. She didn't have a two-year-old or a three-year-old. She was just on the plane, and some guy came down, sat in the middle seat, was drunk. Oh, my. And it's, and harassed her and the girl beside her. At least I saw it as harassment. And she kind of took it, which surprised me. At least that's what it said in the article. She felt sorry for him, and he, she, you know, at first I guess she didn't realize he had been drinking. And I don't know. But finally, she had to say something to the stewardess, and they got him and moved him to the back of the plane. But he kept saying, you girls are so beautiful, and I'm so lucky to be sitting oh between the two God. of you. And then he's oh putting his God. hand on her shoulder. Oh. I would not have waited. I don't think there's any etiquette or protocol except get away from me. Exactly. Yeah. No, I wouldn't have put up with that at all. So I thought that was, yeah, interesting. Well, I had an experience on uh, This was Barry and I when we flew to Switzerland a couple weeks ago. I told you we went for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to think of something to do. I mean, have it, right? <laughs> Oh, I love your life. Oh, God. I, it's like it's crazy, though. But then sometimes I, like, catch up with myself, and I'm, like, totally, like, this morning, completely frazzled. You know, you think you're doing everything great, every have everything under control. Do you ever feel that And then all of a sudden... Yeah, you lose it. Yeah. Like Absolutely two, lose it. Because, like, one or two things go wrong, and then it's... it's. I was, like, screaming at Barry this morning. He was so good. Like, get your computer. My computer wasn't working. I couldn't get my information out. So I'm, like, really... Nasty, and if I were he, I would have walked right out the door. And he didn't. He didn't. Um, he. I think he's maintaining himself till after the show. But you know
4: how that is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you better be careful, Catherine. After the show is going to be ugly. I know, but you know, it's just like I. I don't know how many, how much, how what does it take for you to like go off? It take like maybe the stakes are high and I want to do something well, like I want to do my show well, uh-huh. and two things go wrong, or, you know, like the computer's not working, the phone's not working, then I go nuts. I totally understand there's certain
3: things that set me off too, and I can't put my finger – I I don't really know what it is, but I think it's it's the certain thing at a certain time. You know, like this, you know, like yours, right before your show.
2: Exactly. I yeah. mean, other times you can tolerate things better. It's a little bit but, more, yeah, yeah. Is that what you're saying?
3: Yeah, Exactly.
2: Yesterday we went to uh we were invited here in Provincetown. Howard Dean, the uh, head of the Democratic National Committee, you know, uh-huh. he ran for president last time
3: uh-huh.
2: uh and didn't make it but became head of the Democratic National Committee, had a little I not a soiree, but they had a you had to pay. I mean you had to pay to get in obviously and the monies go to the Democratic Committee, but only about fifty people. Here in Provincetown at one of the restaurants, catered, lovely. Wow. Yeah, very nice. And then he was going on to Wellesley to, I guess, a a much bigger event that had 250 people. But he spoke, and uh, he's very articulate. Very, very articulate. Nice. Uh, When did
3: you do that last night?
2: Yeah, yeah, yesterday. It was yesterday afternoon. It was kind of like from 2 to 4. They had they had wonderful hors d'oeuvres and cocktails and stuff. I actually didn't have a drink because I wanted to be able to talk to him and ask a decent question. And after I <laughs> well, after so I had you a, didn't have a drink. I didn't. And a, after a glass of wine, then I'm not as coherent. So I decided not to do that. But <laughs> what was your question? Well, you and I, and I'm saying, are you and you were a Hillary fan? Were you? Or I no? am
3: a Hillary fan, but yeah. I also I'm a, I'm very supportive of Obama. Yeah,
2: okay. I am, too. I am, too. But he said a lot of Hillary fans have to get used to, like, they identified with Hillary, especially women, and, like, it takes sometimes to kind of decompress. Uh, he didn't use that word. And so that you can get on the bandwagon for Obama.
3: I've, I have spoken to a lot of Hillary fans that don't want to support Obama, and that does not make sense to me.
2: And what do you say to them? Because I'd, this is one of the...
3: I'd, I don't underst I don't know what my mother's one of them. I hope she's not listening. Um maybe she is, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But she can always click on in the archive right supporting- here, don't forget that, but go she on. She is supporting Obama but she was there was a reluctance and I shouldn't say that I think her um boyfriend is actually supporting McCain now that uh, Hillary's not running and I don't understand that. I don't I just don't talk to him about it because it could get ugly, you know.
2: Well, this is the whole point. And this was the point that I brought up, somebody else brought up and it's Something that we have to help combat, and I don't know, do you think it has to, let's be really truthful about this. Uh, and I talked to, to Howard Dean about it. I asked him this question. I mean, I, do you think the issue of racism comes into play? I mean, that people, I mean, we have, we had a, a woman running for president for the first time, a black man, an African American man, and somehow white males, and I have to say it on my show because where else can you get it all out, right? Will vote for a, a white woman but they won't vote for an african-american man do you think that that's part of the issue well i do think it's
3: part of the issue because i can't what if you look at them on paper their issue where they
2: stand on issues are almost exactly the same right exactly that's what he was saying Healthcare, very very not much of a difference at all i agree with that
3: i'm so that's why i do think it's a race issue and there's um or a i don't know race is probably the right word but um I know system. that I know that this particular person I'm thinking of—he's worked in the prison system for years and years. How could he not have some bias? You know what I mean?
2: I know whatever people's biases is. though, so how do you get by that? Exactly. I, mean, you know, I agree with both that. People vote their values in the end. Okay, that's one of the things that Howard Dean said. But one of the things that look to take a look at your people also vote their pocketbook. Take a look at your pocketbook, folks, and whatever your issues are, or whatever you you know. Think about this. This is what I have to say. Do you want another four years of George Bush? Just in terms of your pocketbook, I agree with that. I okay. agree with that. We have
3: we need to create. Uh, this is what I what I like about where Obama is going is um, we in order to change our, what's going on with our pocketbooks and our economy and all of that than the, big, the bigger picture of our issues. Our issues are huge, bigger than I've ever in my entire lifetime. They're huge. So we need to do drastic change. And if George Bush can have the drastic change that he made in the past eight years, someone else can make drastic change for the
2: good. And, and if, someone who is brilliant. Obama is a brilliant, he's a brilliant
3: guy. He's brilliant man. He is a, he's very smart. I think he's a very intellectual, smart man.
2: Harvard Law School Review. I mean, you can't get much better than that and so you know in terms of you know he he and hillary are intellectual equals and um you yeah, I, I think and i feel like i want to work for him somewhere <laughs> not, not necessarily in I new york that. state yeah. i don't think he needs it in new york state but some place where i could be of help
3: Well, I have to say I'm pretty impressed, Catherine, because you were a very die-hard Hillary fan, and here you are going the other, not the other direction, but support. She's not our candidate of choice, not that you and I didn't choose, but, um, you know, we've got to put our votes in. But now we have to make an alternative choice, and here you are supporting him 100%. I'm very impressed.
2: Yeah, thank you. And because we have to go for the greater good, I mean, and that's, that's what it's all about, isn't it? I mean, we have to do the right thing. Isn't it about doing the right thing? Isn't this our opportunity to do the right thing?
3: Definitely. Definitely, definitely. Time to.
2: Yeah. So find a place for me to go to. I could go in the month of October, seriously, and do something and help convince other people or whatever I need to do that we have to do this. We have to do the right thing. We'll work on it. I like that. Yeah. And it's got to – do you go to Alabama, Arkansas? I've never been (laughs) that. Good. You've been to Switzerland. Might as well go to Arkansas or Alabama. Yeah, Missouri or one of those places. It would give me an opportunity to go there. I've never been in that part of the, the country, so uh, yeah, maybe that's the place to go. Anyway, we have to take a break. We have got thirty seconds to go, my dear, and we have our next. Hopefully, we have. We don't care if we don't have our next guest. We can talk anyway. Can <laughs> to Catherine Zox and Lauren Beller on Voice America Women's Network. I'm your social worker with a microphone. Don't go away, Lauren, and I'll be back in a few minutes.
5: Are the days passing by faster than you can believe? Do your kids, job, pets, family, errands, and life demands leave no time left for you? Listen to Life Tune-Ups with Lauren Slocum each week. You can have it all. Balance it and truly enjoy your life. Be ready to have fun, laugh, and learn from celebrities and everyday heroes. We don't need an entire life overhaul, just a little bit of tweaking for our lives to be what we want. Life Tune-Ups with Lauren Slocum, every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Women's Network. Your life is waiting for
6: you. What would happen if you didn't follow the established path? If you did the unexpected? Would you feel scared? Proud? Relieved? Relieved? Could you explain that helping the people of Peru improve their own community would also have an effect on your own? Or assisting an entrepreneur in Ukraine to launch your small business? Or creating a support group in Malawi for children orphaned by AIDS? What if you established your own path, one that others might follow? Would you rather make your own way or spend your life saying, what if? Life is calling. How far will you go? Peace Corps. To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580. Or go to peacecorps.gov.
0: We don't beat you over the head with our opinion, and we listen to yours. The new face of talk radio, Voice America Women's Radio Network.
1: Listening to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788.
2: This morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on Voice America Women's Network, and with my co host, Lauren Beller. And this morning, Lauren and I are going to be talking to Brooks Hansen, author of The Brotherhood of Joseph, which is a father's memoir of infertility and adoption in the 21st century. Now, advances in reproductive technology have brought joy to millions, but those same breakthroughs have also plunged many couples into a vicious cycle of hope and heartbreak. And in his book, Brooks Hansen, vividly captures the emotional turmoil he and his wife, Elizabeth, endured as they tried to conceive, the years their lives were put on hold, and the excruciating sense of loss. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Brooks.
4: It's nice to be here.
2: Well, your book is is unique. I was talking to my co-host earlier before you got on the show. One reason, because it's written from a man's perspective, which is different. Most of the books I've read are always from a female perspective, so that makes it different in and of itself. But first question, what... You know, why write the book? Who is the book for?
4: Um, well, it's, it's as you say, uh, in, in going through the, the process that we did, um, I realized that there's a big conversation going on in the culture about, about infertility and adoption, um, but that you really don't get the husband's point of view. So one of the impulses was certainly that, just to contribute um, the voice of a husband. I, I wasn't assuming I was typical or that our story was typical, but I think the emotions we were going through and the... I was going through were, were, you know, worth sharing for that reason.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. And you take us through the in vitro fertilization all the way through to adoption. Mm-hmm. What do you think the, the? well, first of all, what would you, what do you think some of the differences are from a man's, going through this from a man's perspective? I've, I've, one of the obvious is in vitro fertilization is more difficult for all women, all the physical kinds of stuff, because they're the ones who are potentially right. uh, getting pregnant, so that's that but from an emotional perspective.
4: Um, well, there's no denying it. it's a more uh, um, uh, acute experience um, for the woman because, as you say, she's at the center of it. Um, so that's what colors the man's perspective to, to a large degree is, I think, the realization that you are in a supportive role um, and that when you're in a supportive role, you tend to downplay your own emotions. You, you're almost pretending that you're not going through it as much because you, can, you recognize that, that your wife is going through so much more um but that's not to say that the experience that the male's having isn't isn't worth sharing and isn't um uh important as well. I mean you ask what the differences are. Well we know the differences between males and females. I think but that there's a lot more um uh anger. I think that where where my wife was experiencing a lot of, of sorrow, this was uh in my experience uh coming out as, as anger, but anger that I was having to suppress in a way because because I recognized it was my purpose here to to be supportive and to be a functionary in this whole thing.
2: Anger because, um, Brooks, you felt like what? That you just, I mean, here you couldn't, you couldn't have a baby. You couldn't get what you wanted. And so, it's you know, anger is kind of, it's interesting. It's more of an aggressive feeling than the, than the you know, than uh, sorrow for, that you described your wife feeling because she couldn't get pregnant. Mm-hmm. What... um take us back a little bit i think it's a pre- more a really prevalent problem because i think a lot of couples now wait until they're older to, to have babies or even wait till they're older to to have a uh, you know per, a monogamous relationship or get married so there are a lot of reasons for all of this so tell us your story
4: um well actually my wife and i met as teenagers but did not um get married until our early 30s because we lived on separate coasts and didn't see each other in the meantime but um, the fates brought us back together in our early 30s, and we married then. And so that's probably the major obstacle that, that, that got in our way, is that uh, uh, we did start somewhat late, and I think but we married very much with the intention of being parents and having a family. There was no question in our mind that that's what we wanted. Um, so it was about six months or a year into after the wedding that we started to recognize that there may be a problem here, and that's what started us down, that sort of the gradual slope towards IVF, where you um, start taking the stimulative drugs and diagnostic procedures. It was probably a year and a half that, uh, after marrying that we had gone, taken the full plunge into IVF, and we were there for another uh, three or four years.
2: So what was the main frustration with IVF? Because, you know, Brooks, I think sometimes, especially as Americans, we think, okay, we have a problem. We'll solve it. We'll get IVF, and we're done, and it's, and and it's over. Uh, you know, there's that misperception of that, and it's not like that at all. And and when listeners uh, buy your book and read it, they will also have some in depth in depth experiences. But um, from reading your book, but that, isn't that kind of the perception? Like, you know, we'll take care of the problem, and then uh, then we're all then we're all set. But that's not the case.
4: Uh, it's not the case. You go. I mean, they, they tell you up front that this is a a thirty percent chance that it will work if, if you're going to one of the best clinics, but um, um, but yeah, that's part of the, the problem, too, is you're watching other couples go through this, and a lot of them are making it work. Um, in our case, the reason we stuck with it as long as we did is that on our third attempt, because we decided to give it at least three tries, um, my wife did achieve pregnancy, but then miscarried about two months in, um, but that really caused us to stick with it because we thought, well... I guess it can work for us. Maybe we just have to be more patient and more diligent and um, our moment will come. Uh, But the longer you stick with it, uh, you know, it starts to take your, it it, it really does, your life starts to slip through your fingers because everything else is having to be put on hold. I mean, this is a a process that requires a lot of focus, a lot of attention. You can't do the things that you would otherwise do or live the life you would otherwise live while you're, Engaged in this process that requires so much of your uh, emotional and financial and practical attention. So it's
2: like a job to be done, and you're talking about doing this for four years and every
4: four years. And, and, the, and the problem too is that um, you know every time a, a pregnancy test comes back negative, it's not as if you can look at each other and say, "Well, at least we're headed in the right direction." Um, uh, you're really just poorer and older than you were, and you're right back in the position of having to decide. Well, we still have this problem, we've still gotta figure out how to fix it and it's it's not getting fixed. So that's the sort of mental space that you're in. This this problem is not going away, it's just getting worse and you're starting to doubt yourself and you're doubting yourself as a couple in your capacity to figure out how to how to fix things and, and how to get what you want.
2: Well it obviously has to take a toll on one's Relationship, one's marriage. At what point did you decide, okay, this is it. We, we we have to kind of do an about face and take perhaps take a look at adoption.
4: Right. Well, we were aware, and I think most couples are aware of adoption as, as the alternative that's out there. Um, what's difficult about coming to it from the from the IVF place is that um, you know it's it's not as if you get some inspirational moment or see some some ad on TV and think that's for us. Uh, you've looked at it as maybe that maybe that's our solution. So it's kind of by process of elimination that you feel well on the medical on the technological side we've we've uh, just been beating our heads against the wall. But now you have to figure out how to drum up that same amount of energy and enthusiasm for a process on the adoptive adoption side, which is um, just as demanding, just as expensive. Could the emotional toll is just as great? It's just very different. So. That mental gymnastic, it's a, it's, a tough, uh, it's a tough transition to make. And even when we were well into it, um, um, I think I recognized that we were on an uphill climb. Uh, and there's, so there's no real good answer to the question except to say that um, it, it's a process of elimination and you're still trying to, to fix this thing. And, and,
2: and you decided on international adoption. Yeah. Why?
4: Um, well, we definitely looked into uh, domestic adoption. And, in fact had put out ads in newspapers and stuff. We were somewhat leery on the domestic side because of stories we'd heard through friends of birth mothers reneging on the agreements uh, even after the child had been born, and that seemed very scary to us. Um, Most of the agencies we spoke to had had been talking about open adoption, where the birth mother has an ongoing relationship or access to information about the child. And I think that there are a lot of couples for whom that works well, and God bless them. Uh, it's not something that we were all that comfortable with, and that's not something you deal with on the international side as much. But of course, on the international side, you've got foreign governments, you know, shutting down programs. Uh, so there's there's risk either way. Um, for us, we at that at the point that that we finally went to Russia, we were kind of trying everything at once. But it was the it was the international. Side that seemed to be coming through for us, uh, just practically. All
2: right, so you two ended up. I, I don't know if we should tell the ending or not. It's a wonderful story. Um, sto-
4: well, I, I hope we tell the ending because I, I often find when people hear me talk about it, it all seems so grim. And, and <laughs> the other reason I tell it is because, you know, what happened in the end was so wonderful but so mind blowing that it, I think that's the part that people need to hear in a way.
2: Yeah. Well, you ended up just making all the right decisions, even though you it was a long, long time but uh, you ended up with this just beautiful baby boy. Um, But it's quite a story. And, you know, we have a couple minutes left. So what about just, you know, one or two pieces of advice, maybe the biggest mistake you made and and probably the best decision that you made in
4: terms of this whole process? Um, I don't know that, 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 as you say, we wound up, finding our son on this path. So there's nothing about the path that I can really say that I regret, and despite the fact that I acknowledge up front. It was incredibly difficult, and and uh, couples need to be aware that not all the solutions always work, and this could be a problem that, that they, are, they are dealing with. Um, uh, I think that if there's any advice to be taken from the book, as you say, at, at the end of the day, uh, we had one more very crucial decision to make when we went over to Siberia, which is that we'd gone to see another little boy, and, and for uh, weird, mysterious, and emotional reasons, that didn't work out. Um, um, but I think the, the moral there is that even after four or five years of the, of the IVF, and even after hiccuping on the adoption side, as we did for a while, um, one needs to recognize this this hammers at the faith that you've got in your own decision-making. And from the male's point of view, that's what this whole process is about, is is decision-making in a way and and trusting your instinct. In our case, there was one more moment where we really had to use our instinct, and that's what brought us Theo, which has made our life blissful ever since, and now he's got a sister, Ada. So if there is any moral, it's as much as this seems to be about reason um, and rationality, uh, and as hard as it is to remember that you've got voices in your head that are worth listening to, um, instinct winds up playing a really important role, whether you're mating the traditional way or, or doing IVF or doing adoption. Uh, you still have to listen.
2: He you still have to trust your instincts and in making good decisions. So great having you on the show this morning. And go out and get the book, Listeners, The Brotherhood of Joseph, A Father's Memoir of Infertility and Adoption in the 21st Century. Brooks Hansen, you can buy it online and at bookstores everywhere. Have a great day.
4: Great. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, we have Miles Jaffe, uh, who's written the Hampton's Dictionary. Don't go away. Lauren and I will be back in a few minutes.
0: Finally, radio that was made just for you, Voice America Women's Radio Network.
6: Four years old son, ready for the big leagues. Put your on, buddy. Hey, okay, go, helmet. So, yeah. Okay, that's right. The thigh guards,
1: now don't forget your mouth guard. You don't want to be losing teeth in your first game. Well, they're baby teeth, but yeah, put it in a... Daddy... Don't let them worry you. They may be over 200 pounds and kind of mean looking, but you're ready for them. Just run through them. Here's the ball. Run!
6: Daddy? Don't look at me. Run with it. Go, boy. Run! But I could get hurt. No pain, no gain. Now, run!
3: <laughs>
5: You wouldn't treat your child like an adult, so why put them in adult seatbelts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat.
1: Ah, you should have straight armed them.
0: For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation
2: Welcome back to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm your social worker with a microphone this morning on Voice America Women's Network. Thanks for joining us this morning, Lauren Deller, my co-host, and Catherine Zox. And we have our next guest is uh, waiting for us. Our next guest is going to be Miles Jaffe, who is author of the Hamptons Dictionary, Stuck in Traffic with a Bad Case of hemorrhoids, I was becoming more aggravated by the minute. Outside, another green field had disappeared, replaced by a McMansion farm that had Sprouted overnight, an empty beer can flew from the Chevy subdivision in front of me. Probably some hamsters arguing about slaughterhouses on their way to a picnic. This is all. uh, Does this statement sound? This statement sound or leave you a little bit perplexed? If so, you need to grab a copy of the Hamptons Dictionary. And here's the author, Miles Jaffe. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning.
7: Oh, good morning, Catherine. Thank you.
2: Now you live in the Hamptons. Your dad was an architect, right? And you've been there for decades. Um, so, you, you know, you're the, you, this is your first book, is, that, am I, is this correct?
7: Yes, it is my first yeah. book.
2: Okay. So the Hamptons, why do we need to know about the Hamptons? Who cares about the Hamptons? Why, you know, tell us about
7: Well, doesn't everybody already know about the Hamptons? I
2: do <laughs> 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 Well, Lauren, my, Lauren you, you said you went to the Hamptons when you were 16. You spent a summer there, right? I did, yes. yeah.
7: But the Hamptons are just like Cannes or Saint Tropez or Malibu. It's a brand name resort for the rich and famous. So everybody knows what the Hamptons is, or at least heard the name. The idea of the Hamptons Dictionary was really to describe in a little more detail uh, sort of the absurdity of this place. What I found, though, was that that absurdity is not just confined to the Hamptons. It's it's evident anywhere where there's sort of too much money. Yeah, I agree.
2: I'm in Cape Cod, which is supposed to be a a, the poor like what do they call it? It's it's the poor Hamptons. Uh, That's the description of it. You go to Cape Cod if you can't go to the Hamptons. Right. right. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, where we're in Provincetown, it's becoming more like the Hamptons and Nantucket and all of those places. They have there's something similar about all of them, right? But the Hamptons is like the number one place, isn't it? It's kind of the the benchmark for all this
7: stuff. I, I think so. I mean, Aspen is up there. There's Aspen. you know, West Palm Beach. There are neighborhoods all over the place, all over the country, all over the world, really that are that are exclusive uh, in terms of the amount of money that's required to be there. And I think in all these places. You're not talking about having a second home. You're talking about it being a fifth or a sixth home. So that if you have a place in the Hamptons, you probably also have a place in Aspen, and you have a place in Los Angeles.
2: So these people see each other all. Really, it's not just in the Hamptons. You're, you know, in, in Aspen, it's a whole entourage of people. I think I was online. What is it, Dan? Dan dot com at the Hamptons, whatever that mm-hmm. blog. And they were. I was going to ask you about this because he describes that. You know, the five hundred people the 500 people who live in the Hamptons, I guess the top 500 people. And I wondered what made them the top 500, because this is who you're talking about in your book, isn't it?
7: Not really. No. Um, first of all, you got to take Dan with a grain of salt, because okay. he's, he's a satirist. And what he does is he sort of makes fun of everybody uh, out here, so that you can't really read what he writes and take it seriously or accurately. Um, not as a diss to Dan, but that's just how it is for him. Uh, And he made a uh, built a newspaper, a small newspaper empire, about doing that, about being entertaining in his writing. The Hamptons Dictionary grew out of an essay where I was trying to talk seriously about the absurdity of this place. And I was reading through a few paragraphs of what I'd written, and I thought, nobody's going to know what I'm talking about because of this language that I'm using. So I thought, I know, I'll make a glossary, and that'll solve the problem. (laughs) And and I started writing down these words and their definitions, and I had two or three, and then I had five, and then I had 20, and then I had a 100. And that became the project. Because the, talking about the language was was really the most concise way to talk about the experience of the place
2: and so what's the response of the because you live in the Hamptons of your friends and neighbors
7: uh... the response is fantastic uh, everybody thinks it's about somebody else so for example not about them <laughs> a, a, a friend of mine uh, is a, has a real estate company and he sells houses to these people and big you know big money houses and i mean let's face it if you're a millionaire you can't afford to buy a house in the hamptons um, so we're talking about a lot of money Hi. anyway he, he takes these books from me and he gives them to his clients and he gives one to a guy who he describes as an fuv driving mcmansion owner now of course there's a there's a big difference between an suv and an fuv being that we're on the air, I'll let you figure that out for yourself. Oh, there were
2: on the Internet. You could say whatever you want. Well,
7: okay. Well, an FUV is the fuck you vehicle. And it's the one that's the big, expensive SUV that's supposed to show how big and important and powerful you are. For example, the Hummer. Um, so anyway, he gives this book to the, to the FUV-driving McMansion owner. The guy cracks open the book, too, McMansion, and starts reading. And he's reading, and he's reading, and my friend's waiting. And finally, the guy says, That's the asshole that was right across the street from me. <laughs> so they all think it's about somebody else everybody thinks it's about somebody else and, and I have tried out believe me any number of behaviors in this book for myself and they don't work I mean I grew up the son of a well-known architect I was somebody you know I, I was important my father was a big shot whatever so I tried a lot of these behaviors based on ego and, and all of this and they don't work it's not it's not where it's at um, so in writing about the Hamptons I found I sort of stumbled into this into this uh, way to expose how it really is here, because this is language that people really use on a day-to-day basis. Um,
2: and miles, they but it hasn't it's changed, hasn't it? I mean, over the, I mean, really the like the demographics of the people over the, let's say, the last thirty years, who you
7: know. Oh, absolutely. This used to be, a, you know, a rural farming community, and there was always a vacation aspect to it. But the vacation aspect was only in the summer. People would come out to their 1,200-square-foot or 1,500-square-foot vacation home where there was no television, there was no fax machine, there was no cell phone, and they would go to the beach. And then they'd go back to the city and get wound up again. Well, at a certain point in about probably the early 70s, property here became so expensive that it was no longer an escape. It became an investment. And the minute it became an investment, suddenly the lawyers were involved, the bankers were involved, it became a serious business proposition, all the fun was taken out of it, the scale went up, the money went up, uh, and the people, the quality of the people started going way down. And it's just been a steady decline ever since. So now what you have are, you know, billionaire underwear manufacturers um, who are just, you know, so full of themselves, they're incredibly uh, difficult to deal with.
2: Well, so, like, it's all about... Money now. Before it used to be about maybe not so much about money, but about well, maybe prestige. As you say, your father was a very well-known architect. It was just a different type of person who who was who was out there. Actually, I, in the seventies, my ex brother-in-law, since deceased Larry Zox, had a uh, house in East in Montauk, and uh, modest yeah. house, a lovely house, but you know, as you're describing, I don't know, twelve hundred square feet, but all you know.
7: Uh, well, now houses are 10,000 square feet. Ten, or more. Or more, exactly. Uh, huge houses, six-car garages. Uh, you know, this is for a couple or a small family that might come here a couple weekends a year spend a few weeks here in the summer. The house sits vacant most of the time. They're heated in the winter. They're cooled in the summer. they're you know, pesticide, herbicide, and fungicide-sprayed lawn is irrigated for eight months of the year. It's over-irrigated, which is called a watershed, basically, just so that the landscaper can justify mowing the lawn two or three times a week and therefore making, you know, more income out of it. It's a whole sham.
2: So what? So where does this take us? I mean, because you're right, this is the same in Palm. I think it's the same in Palm Beach. Um, I used to go there 40 years ago, when my grandparents went there, but it's totally different now. Completely different. It's all about. It's really just all about the money. And
7: exactly. I, yeah,
2: I think it stops there.
7: Yeah, go ahead. Real estate is the industry here, and the real estate, I mean, it, it, it is all about money. And in a way, the Hamptons are really a, a metaphor for the United States and for the bigger issue of how our government deals with money. I mean, that's another, another story. I don't know that we want to go there. Well,
2: that's but, another book for you. This is your first book. Now that'll be your second one. Uh,
7: maybe. <laughs> maybe. I've got some ideas for another book. <laughs> but but it, it, you're right. I mean, the money is, is the bottom line, and... and that's really the problem here because, uh, it gets in the way of everything. People, you know, social class is not social class, it's economic class. And in America, we've confused the amount of money with your status in society. And having a lot of money doesn't improve your status, it just means you have a lot of money. I call this false authority syndrome which is the tendency to believe that a person of money is also a person of taste, intelligence, higher education, social consciousness, what have you. Yes. When in fact absolutely all they, not true. When, I, when in fact I, all they really have for sure is money, they may have some of those other things.
2: Or they may not.
7: Or they may not. Yes. Most because likely what they, they do, do and not. How
2: they, yeah, how they made their money, absolutely. I think I remember in sociology 101, your status was based on, it could be based on money, it could be based on a status at a job. Professors have a lot of status but not a lot of money. Uh, old money, new money. There were four or five different, I guess, criteria for for
7: for status. But um, and it's also situational. So, for example, when your toilets are backed up and your cesspool needs to be pumped, you know, the guy driving that pumper truck has incredible status.
2: <laughs>
7: <laughs> you know, the plumber can be a very you know high status guy. The plumber, they have this dictionary defines plumber as a drain surgeon. You know, this is a guy who uh, gets a lot, gets as much money as a doctor. And needs to schedule months and an appointment months in advance to show up.
2: Yeah, and he's the kind of guy also who wants to tell you who he works for too, because that's all part of his status, right? You have to know that he cleans so and so's septic tank. And, yeah,
7: some and, some of them play that game. Some, yeah, some of them. We're, most of us are just so tired of all of this. Um, you know, the, 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 we we tell our Hamptons classics. You know, we tell which are the silly stories about the Hamptons.
2: So do you think it's going to get worse, Miles, or better, or, you know, the situation with the economy uh, will change things? We have a couple more minutes left.
7: I don't know. Um, The last time we had a a problem here was in the early uh, 90s, which was after the Black Monday in 88 when the economy broke. Uh, It took three years for it to hit out here. So we're really in a bubble. Uh, Again, we're still in the bubble here, but the middle of the real estate market has collapsed. The bottom end... People are hunting for deals, and over ten million, it's stronger than ever. So uh, there, there is still that bubble of wealth here, and it it is insulating this area to a great extent from the problems that are facing the rest of the country. I don't know if we're in so deep this time that things are really going to change. I kind of doubt it.
2: So you think it's going to the sort of status quo? It will stay the same.
7: Yes, I do. I believe so until we see some structural changes in the country. Which probably aren't too far
4: away. The yeah. we way we're going,
2: <laughs> and you know, we, we've got a minute left, but I didn't. I didn't even mention this because you're dot com that website. Yes, that's,
4: that's
2: very funny. I went to the website. That's very cool. It it's, I guess, started the whole thing. And I just want listeners to know: go to nukethehamptons dot com if you want to have some fun. And well,
7: also, the, this yeah. was started in two thousand and one. I did this uh, at, at, with the new media of the internet. And the idea was to to sort of. Poke fun and point attention to the absurdity again of what goes on here. And I, I built this site over the winter, and I released it with ten emails to friends. The next day, I had a thousand hits. Within a week, I was on the cover of both local newspapers. Within a month, I was a New York pro, New York Observer did a front page profile of me. Financial Times of London picked it up. It went all around the world. I was getting four hundred thousand visitors a year. And what I realized, what I learned from this, was you know I thought the Hamptons were this really exclusive bubble, and they are in a way. But that's repeated time and again all over the world. So I got targeting requests from exclusive suburbs like Bondi, which is outside of Sydney, Australia, and places in Europe, and places all over the country. People were emailing me, "Please add this, you know, add uh, West Palm Beach to the target list."
2: <laughs> that's very cool. All right, go to the website, folks. NukeTheHamptons dot and buy the Hamptons Dictionary. Miles Jaffe. Great. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. Catherine Zox and Lauren Deller on Voice America Women's Network. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute.
0: Talk radio that informs, entertains, and enlightens you. Voice
5: America, Women's Radio Network are the days passing by faster than you can believe do your kids job pets family errands and life demands leave no time left for you listen to life tune-ups with lauren slocum each week you can have it all balance it and truly enjoy your life be ready to have fun laugh and learn from celebrities and everyday heroes we don't need an entire life overhaul just a of tweaking for our lives to be what we want. Life tune ups with Lauren Slocum every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Women's Network. Your life is waiting for you. Mom? Dad? How long should I wait for you? Mom? If I'm at soccer practice. What if something happens? Will you come get me? Should I stay where I am and wait for you? Or go to Grandma's house? Since it's closer. Should I pick a place for me? There's no reason not to have a plan in case of a terrorist attack. Mom, if you're not home, should we go to the neighbor's house? How do we keep in touch with each other if the phones don't work? Should I be worried how we all get home? And some extremely good reasons why you should. Can you tell me? Everybody should have a plan. Take five minutes to talk about where you'll meet and how you'll get in touch with each other in an emergency. For other things you can do to be prepared, visit www.ready.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council.
0: Talk radio that informs, entertains, and enlightens you. Voice America, Women's Radio Network.
1: listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
2: Welcome back to The Catherine Zox Show. Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Lauren Deller, my co-host, and Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and joining Lauren and me this morning is Sunny Anderson. She's been on our show before. She's host of Cooking for Real, and she has begun a fact-finding food adventure in her new series. This is on the Food Network. How did I get that on my plate? Welcome to the show, Sunny. Nice to have you on. Catherine, thank you so much for having me back. Yes. Well, it's Sunny with a sunny voice. Your voice really reflects your name. I do have to say, don't you think so, Lauren? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Cooking for real. Oh, boy. How did that get on my plate? What is it? What is this new series that you're doing? Catherine, I'm loving it. I love this show. Um, It wasn't my idea. Listen,
8: I was sitting around having meetings with Food Network, um, you know, just typical business meetings with your boss and your coworkers, and every time we had a meeting, it was at a new restaurant, of course. Why not? Before we go to the restaurant, I'm all into research, you know, so I'd get on the Internet and I'd get in Zagat or anything I could find, any any literature about that restaurant. And um, I'd show up, you know, and I'd basically over, you know, looking at the menu, tell everyone everything I knew about the restaurant. <laughs> well, unbeknownst to me, they liked that. And um, they thought, wow, you know, we really like the fact that she's inquisitive and does her research. And they thought, you know, let's put her on a show like that instead of uh, like a going around the country and eating show, which I love to do as well. Um, and so this is perfect for me. I am researching and learning and teaching um, how foods get from their rawest form to various finished products.
2: All right, so you talk about Eggs. That was one of the things. Okay. Yes. Single, uh, t- so, in other words, a single ingredient. Let's mm-hmm. take an egg. Um, you all. I start a- off at the barn oh.
8: with the chickens at two weeks. So I had to swab down and put on a full bio suit and, uh, in order to gain entry into the barn where the chickens are raised that actually lay the eggs. And um, I got to see them two weeks in in their temperature-controlled barn. And, I mean, I go from there to the 24-week-old hens that are actually laying, and from there I take the eggs to the plant where they get processed and sized and weighed and USDA checked, and they go off to be powdered eggs and so many different
2: things. So, Sunny, how did that get on my plate, really, you traveling the country showcasing the technology and the innovation it takes to produce today's favorite foods, right? Is that the description? You're you're on it. And, Sonny, don't you think by doing that, because I think there's a thing here, when you do that, maybe we we, as Americans will have a greater appreciation of where our food comes from and how we have to preserve our food and its natural and raw ingredients if we want to, you know, eat well as a nation.
8: Let me tell you, you hit it right on the head. I love this show for that reason alone. Because look, I'm a viewer of television, and I love when it's infotainment. You know, shows like Modern Marvels and how um, how that get on my plate, and Unwrapped. You know, there's shows when I watch them, I feel like I kind of gain a little insight into. How these foods come to light and the processes it takes to get them there, and you know, traveling the country, I knew growing up, growing up, you know, in the military, how different people worked and different career fields. But it's so great to see the working man and woman on the farm or in the factory actually putting these products together that we dine on every single day.
2: Sunny, were there any big surprises for you? I mean, you know, you're describing yes. the egg. Okay, tell us some of the ones that you like. Oh my gosh, I never realized this is like amazing or I'm, you know, you were really kind of taken aback by how that particular raw ingredients got to our plate? Um, Well,
8: I guess two two things really struck me. First, you know, I love chocolate but never did any research on it, you know, as to where it came from. I just know that I love it, you know, and um, to see a cacao pod in its smallest form of a charelle and then how it grows and then to crack it open and see cocoa beans encapsulated in that gooey white mess that smells like mangoes. You know, that really surprised me to see that's where chocolate comes from.
2: We have chocolate um, here in the United States. We have those beans. They're here. We harvest those. Well, the only state in
8: the U.S. that harvests cacao pods is Hawaii. So that's where we went.
6: And never it's a beautiful
8: farm. Yeah. It is a beautiful farm. And uh, the couple is actually from South Carolina. They went down to Hawaii on vacation 12 years ago, and they never went, went back. So <laughs> we went down there, and uh, we, we took a tour of their cacao pod farm, and they're actually manufacturing the chocolate right there on the farm. So we got to see the, the uh, actual cocoa beans ferment in the wooden bins, and the, they, they were laying out in the sun. Um, it's just beautiful. And we've got a lot of little photos that I took along the way on FoodNetwork.com as well, so you can kind of see my travel log as I, you know, go around the country seeing all these wonderful foods just get on our plate.
2: All right, so we just go to the website, and then we can see it as it's happening while you're doing it, while you're going around the country. One of the things mm-hmm. i got here, you you, uh, making a martini, because I love martinis, out of potato vodka. Yes. How do you do that? Can I do it? Yes. We can
8: all do it because we are going to go to a plant that produces vodka that is made from potatoes and the starches of potatoes.
2: Have you yes. been there or are you going there?
8: We're on the way. You're on the <laughs> way. Yep, that's where we're going. So, I mean, we've done strawberries and honey. That's the debut episode this Monday. Milk. Uh, to see that happy cows really do make more milk was <laughs> really is that entertaining. True? Yes. cows, are cows like
2: people, Sunny? Like you know is that yes. what is it, cortisol? That we, like when we're stressed out, that we we uh, secrete this hormone cortisol, which is not good for us. Is, is yeah, cows do the same thing if they're under stress, and then they have sour milk. It's like an they old wives' They totally of- are.
8: Yeah, it's not so much sour milk as to not as much milk as you could get, or just no milk at all. You really have to. I mean, we went to a farm where the heavy producers of milk were in a temperature and humidity-controlled tent, you know, where mists of cool air were burst on them, you know, in, intermittently throughout the day to keep them cool, and then their beds were fluffed once a day, so they had something nice to lay on, because it's a heavy load to carry.
2: They have room yeah. service, or they have... Yeah.
8: <laughs> it gets even crazier. The coolest thing I-, I saw, Catherine, was when I went into the little milking area if I walked past the cow too fast or spoke loud, which is really easy for me, mm-hmm. um, a cow that was milking would get nervous and immediately stop releasing milk.
2: You know, if so you really nurs- got to I have to say, something, I don't know about you, but I mean, you know, I nursed all three of my babies, and I'll tell you, it's the same as with, with you know humans. If you're not in, relaxed and you're not in a situation. That is a relaxing kind of atmosphere. It does affect your ability to produce milk or to make it a positive, uh, uh, nursing, um, situation between the mother and baby.
8: Yeah, I was thinking that the whole time. You know, I don't have kids yet, but I do know that that's one of the factors when women breastfeed, and so I so wanted to say that. But you know, that wouldn't go well with food and breastfeeding. Well, and, I said it. But, yeah, you <laughs> said it. And I'm glad you did. We can
2: keep talking. You're great. I want to make sure that. Just quick, Sunny Anderson, host of Cooking for Real. How did that get on my plate? Give us the uh, the time and the and the website so we can. Go well, to it's it. FoodNetwork.com,
8: Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. My new episodes begin this Sunday, and Monday evening, this Monday night, is the debut episode of How That Get on My Plate at 9.30 p.m., and that's going to be every Monday night. You can check FoodNetwork.com for listings.
2: Thanks so much. Sunny Anderson, as always, great to have you on the show. Thank you have have a so good, much. Yeah, Robert. have a good Fourth of July. You too, Lauren. You too. And, um... Thanks, everybody, for joining us this morning on Voice America Women's Network. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Have a great day, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.